0: Well, that was my sermon. (laughs) So, (laughs) as you know, we're in Luke tonight, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And as we have spent several months in this series of the scarlet thread of redemption that we've seen throughout Scripture, we come to this passage um, this week and next week, I would say, Um, these texts are the pinnacle of the series. It doesn't mean the previous messages are any less significant, obviously, um, and it doesn't mean the ones to follow are any less significant. But I believe, actually, what we have gone through in the series so far helps us appreciate, or I hope, this text and the one to follow next week. And then what we... um, Cover in the upcoming months, we will understand better and appreciate because of this text and the one we are preaching next week. So we're in Luke chapter twenty-three, and we're covering the crucifixion, uh, verses thirteen through forty-nine. But we will um, kind of concise it, obviously, and and. Go through this passage. In this passage, there are several characters and, and, and people, different scenes, if you will, and, and I hope to adequately cover uh, each big piece in this narrative that we find in the 23rd chapter of Luke. Starting off, we have uh, Pilate, you know, as you know, in verse 13, and he has been interrogating Jesus and he says, I, I don't see where this man is guilty. I, I don't see it. There's, and he's talking to uh, the crowd. He says, I find no fault in this man. Herod does not either. And so we have a man who's on the fence who really does believe in the innocence of Jesus, I believe, because he says so. But he also is on the fence because he doesn't want there to be a riot. He also wants to maintain power. And so to appease the crowd, he says, I'll set him free, but I'll, essentially says, I'll beat him and then set him free. We know that that's not good enough for the Jews. And so he ramps it up a little bit. And I'm sure as he was thinking this, or as he did this, he was thinking, okay, surely to goodness that they will take this deal. And so he says, I will offer uh, to set one of these men free. Barabbas, who we learn is a murderer and started an insurrection, which means the Romans, for people who did that, for people who did that, it was, it was uh, terrible for the Jewish citizens because the Romans hated people trying to do that. And so they already hated Barabbas because he was a murderer, and he did this. And so Pilate's thinking, if I present, you have to choose one of these two men. I mean, Jesus, he has a large following, or had had a large following. Now everyone's left him. He's had some pretty controversial teachings with the Jewish leaders, but really, that's about it, because he's healed people. He has uh, raised people from the dead. Sure, he's stepped on some toes a little bit, but that's about it. So they are not going to to choose Barabbas to be set free. But he was mistaken. That's exactly what they did. And in fact, you can read in Matthew 27 that they hate this man, hate Jesus so much that they in fact say, let his blood, what, be on us and our children. Can you imagine the hatred of that statement? To, to go as far as to say, don't just let his blood be shed on us, but on our children as well. We hate him that much. So, because of his fear of a riot in the land, and also in fear of him losing his status, he gives Jesus over. And that's where we're, we kind of come to the text And we start, I'll I'll go ahead since I cover that first part, we'll start in verse 26 because we find somebody else and right after that, uh, a group of of people in this text. And I, I wanna briefly cover them as well. Starting in verse 26, we read, when they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. So you have this man, Simon who is from Libya today coming for the Passover? And, and, you know, he's probably thinking this is going to be an ordinary day. And all of a sudden, there's a crucifixion, which in that time period is very common. Crucifixions were not uncommon in that era. It happened so often that the citizens didn't really think much of it when it did happen. But it did strike fear within uh, the Roman citizens and, and the Jews because, they, I mean, they didn't want to do anything. To uh, have them crucified, but so many crucifixions were happening. However, this man is just walking, probably, and and getting ready for the Passover, and they tell him, "You need to pick up this man's cross and take it." And in other gospel accounts, it's written that he has two, at least, two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And can you imagine the story he told them, or if he ever had grandkids? what he did on this one day. I was just minding my own business when a Roman guard came up to me and he said, you're gonna carry this man's cross. He had nothing to do with the situation. He had nothing to do. He, didn't, he probably didn't wanna have anything to do with anything. Just keep me out of trouble. But you have this man who is going up to be crucified. He's already been beaten severely to the point of death, essentially. And he can't carry his own cross. But when you dig deeper and think who this man is, we've, we've already talked about him throughout the past several months. This is the man who healed, who, who preached, who, who raised Lazarus from the dead, who taught his disciples. This is God in the flesh. And think about it for a moment. God in the flesh can't even carry his own cross. The one who spoke creation in existence, the one who created the tree that would be cut down, that would be formed into this cross that would be for him, he did all this and he can't carry his cross. What does that tell us? Well, first of all, it shows the humility of Jesus, that he is fulfilling the Father's will that was was stated in the Old Testament that he even preached about, but it also shows his full humanity. And we can't neglect that. He was fully human. He had to be fully human if he was going to die the sinner's death in your place and my place. And now we see him beaten so severely that he cannot carry his own cross. He cannot carry the own instrument that will bring him to his death. He has to have someone else carry it for him. Talk about the humiliation and this man carrying this cross for him. But after that, we see, and, the, and following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. So not only that, you have a bunch of people, you have a big crowd probably following him. And there's really no indication as to these women in particular being his close friends, Mary and, and Martha, those ladies, while they are there from a distance. There's not necessarily an indication that this is them, but there's a large crowd, people following and mourning what he is going through. Some probably legitimate, but also in that day, if you study Jewish culture and Jewish history, even today this exists, there are professional mourners. And they would would show up to these uh, crucifixions. They would show up to these, uh, well, really, if anybody died, and if... Some of these people were paid, and they would mourn for you. That, that that was their job. And so there might have been some of these ladies there, regardless, doesn't matter. There's a large group of people following him up to this place of his death, and they're weeping for him. Some uh, legitimately weeping, some maybe not. But think of what Jesus is going through, as I mentioned, what He is enduring, the pain that he is suffering, his eyes are probably swollen shut, he can't hardly see, he's been beaten, mocked, ridiculed, and he still takes the time to look at these women, and he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. He's not even really thinking of himself, he's thinking of these women who are weeping, and what does he say? He says, stop weeping for me. Why does he say that? Well, He's saying that because he knows he's doing the Father's will. He's doing what is best to restore humanity. This wicked, vile way to die, this, this torturous way to die on a cross, he knows this has to happen if these women who are crying for him are gonna be able to have a chance to be made right with him. So he says, don't cry for me. I'm essentially doing this for your own good. What does he, what does he tell them after that? He says, don't, don't weep for me. "'Weep for yourselves and for your children. "'For behold, the days are coming when they will say, "'Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore "'and the breasts that never nurse.'" And then he prophesies. He's, so he's, he's preaching, essentially, as he's coming to his death. He says, "'Then they will begin to say to the mountains, "'Fall on us and to the hills, cover us.'" This is found in Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What in the world is he saying? <laughs> what is going on here? The fact that he can probably, he's probably almost completely unconscious from, from what he's going through, and he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, because there's going to be a day where those who are considered barren, and in that time, if you were barren, you were considered worthless, they're going to be considered blessed. Because, and, and people are gonna wish for the mountains to fall on them. Why? Well, he's, he's telling them of what's to come in a few years, after, well after his death and his resurrection of when the temple is going to be overthrown, when it's gonna be destroyed by the Romans. And so he's saying, you think this is bad, as bad as it looks, as wicked, evil, and vile as this looks, and even in some way is, this is for your good, weep for yourselves, you have a lot to be, you have way more to be concerned about than me, you need to be concerned for yourselves. And as I was studying this passage and got to verse 31, I really couldn't find many answers as to what he means when he says, for if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What what does he mean when he says this? Well, by some indication, I think, to an extent, what he's saying is, if the Romans are doing this to a righteous man who does not deserve death, who does not deserve any of this, who has lived a completely holy life, who is blameless, who they've tried to frame, and they did frame me, but it's not true. If, if they're doing this to me, what are they going to do to corrupt Jerusalem, the Jews who have been disobedient to my father's law, what are they going to do to you if they're doing this to me? So he's saying, you weep for yourselves. Don't weep for me. I'm doing what is best for you. And then the narrative goes on. It says, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. So not only is he dying this gruesome death, he's being debased as a criminal, being hung on a cross next to two criminals who justly deserve what is coming to them, apparently, according to the text. And so he's in the middle, in between these two criminals. But it's interesting, too, Because in this text, we'll get to verse 33 in a second. We see all that is happening, and we'll get to verse 34, obviously. But verse 35, it says, And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ, the chosen one. Mark says, uh, records something similar in the 29th verse of chapter 15, Says those passing were hurling abuse at him. So he's being taken to this place, the place of the skull, it's called, because if you look from a distance, it does look like a skull. And contrary to the songs we sing, he wasn't on top of the hill, he was in front. And so there's a path where people are walking along as Jesus is being crucified. And they're just walking along. And remember, the Sabbath is about to be upon them and they can't work on the Sabbath. They can't uh, travel on the Sabbath. So they're trying to get everything done. And they're just casually, as it says in Mark 15, those passing by, they're just walking by and they see this man on a cross and they recognize him. And what do they say about him? They say, hurling abuse. And they say, ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They're looking up at him, say, you're the guy that said this. Oh, if you're the guy that says this, save yourself and come down from the cross. They're casually walking by. One reason, they've seen crucifixions many times. Another reason, many of them hated him. And so they see, he said he was gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And now, not only is he dying, he's dying in the most humiliating way that a Jew wouldn't even die like this. This is, this is so humiliating You said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild in three days. Why don't you save yourself? So that's what they're saying. They're simply passing along because he's not far from them. He hears all this. He hears the Roman guards mocking him. He hears the, the priests laughing at him. And then Luke says in verse 35, when they came to the place of the school, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Isn't it interesting that that's really all Luke says about the crucifixion itself? He doesn't go into description on what a crucifixion is. His audience knows what it is, so he doesn't really need to. But really, if you think about the gospel of Luke, all of his writings are leading up to this moment. They're leading up to the moment of the crucifixion. They're leading up to what is going to happen after the crucifixion. But then he just says, well, he was crucified, and then a criminal, one on the right and one on the left. Why do you think he would do that? Other than his audience knowing. I believe he didn't describe what Jesus went through as far as the nails being driven in his wrists, them having to twist his feet so they could shove those nails in, into his feet so he could hang on that cross and not just place, but drag that crown of thorns on his head He's severely dehydrated to the point of death, obviously. He's not describing any of this stuff because I think Luke is probably thinking what happened while he is on the cross is what I want to record. I want to record what happened while he was on the cross because people need to know about this. So he's built up to this point, says that Jesus is being crucified, one on the right, one on the left. And you think about a crucifixion, as I mentioned, the brutality of it. And and Jesus endured way more than many did who were being crucified, who had been crucified. But not only is he facing that much pain, that much agony, he is suffocating Because what happens when you're hanging on this cross and the weight of your body is dragging you down? First of all, you feel the weight of those nails on your wrists. Your body weight is, is holding those nails in place and you just feel the pressure, the weight of that on your body. And as your body is hunched over, you can't breathe or you can barely breathe. And so to gasp for air, he has to lift up his body all the while feeling those nails that are driven in his wrists and feet puncture him even more. His flesh has been beaten, open wounds, infection, and his back is rubbing on that cross just so he could gasp for air. Nobody is going to want to talk while they're on this cross. But Jesus preaches a sermon and he does so much more because what does he say when he's watching those mocking him, those ridiculing him, those laughing at him. The guards gambling over his garments which they don't realize they're fulfilling prophecy while he's doing it, but they're doing that. He sees all this, can't hardly breathe. Body is in so much anguish, anguish and turmoil just to catch a breath. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's our savior. That's my Savior. I hope he's your Savior. Father, forgive them, for they don't realize what they're doing. Forgive them because you, you see his boundless compassion. He can't hardly breathe, and he says, he could have said anything he wanted to, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. They don't realize the full scope of what is going on here. Because if they did, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 2.8, they wouldn't have done it. They don't realize that they are crucifying the Son of God. They don't realize they are crucifying the one that not only has the power to forgive sin, but this had to be done. He had to be sacrificed. He had to be crucified for them to be made right with him. They do not realize what they are doing. And yet he still says, Father, forgive them. But we can't forget that there are two other men on each side. Well, there's one man on one side, one man on the other. There's two criminals on each side. And they're going through the same thing as far as the pain, the anguish of a crucifixion. Now, Jesus has way more pain that's happening, but as far as being crucified, they're experiencing the same the same pain, they can't breathe hardly, and so to catch their breath, they have to lift themselves up, feeling all the pain in their hands, their feet. They've been beaten as well. But they don't stay silent. They speak. So, each of these men, both of these men, apparently believe that what they have to say is worth more than the breath the, the breath that they have in their lungs. Because what happens? Both of them speak. In verse 39, we read, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? So this man is about to die, can't breathe, in so much pain, and he sees fit. He thinks he needs to criticize and mock this man. For one, he wants to be saved, not in the way the other one wants to be saved, but he wants to be saved from the cross because he says, well, if, if if you are who you say you are, save yourself. And while you're at it, save us. Get us out of this mess. If you are God in the flesh, if you are uh, the Messiah, then not only can you save yourself, you should save yourself. And while you're at it, be generous enough to save me and save this other criminal right here. So with probably some of his last few breaths, he says, he makes this statement. But then the other criminal, what does he say? The other answered him, rebuking him, said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. We're getting what we deserve, is what he's saying. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he says, To the man, Jesus Christ, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And with what little energy Jesus Christ has, what does he say? Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In the final moments of Jesus' life on the cross, he is saving He is still doing the work of his father. He has come to what? Seek and what? Save the lost. And he's doing it while he is suffering on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So that man, he had no good works in his arsenal, he's a criminal. He even admitted he deserved justly. He deserved what was coming to him. He did not live a faithful life to Yahweh. He was not faithful to God his whole life. And he's about to die. And in the last few moments of his life, commits himself to this man named Jesus. And he says, because you have done this, because you believe I am who I say I am, you are gonna be with me in paradise today. That is the God that we serve. There is nothing that you can do and there is nothing that I can do to earn God's approval, to earn God's favor. And the God I serve can and will save anybody who is willing to be saved. So this all has taken place and it says, In verse 46, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, we see the communion he still has on the cross with his Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The preceding verse, what does it say? Verse 45, Because the sun was obscured, the veil of the temple was torn in two. What is the significance of this? The veil's torn. Okay? I'm gonna read something real quick in Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two verse eleven. This is right after the famous passage of you are not saved by works, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. And then he says, We're his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus. So we know those verses, those are familiar to us. But we often forget what happens right after that, what Paul writes. In verse 11 of chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians, he says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, he says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. And listen to this and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace. He broke the wall, the dividing wall, so that we could be made right with him. And what does this mean? The veil's torn. We read... That, just this passage from Ephesians. You think about the temple, and if I'm not mistaken, it's pretty much in the shape of a rectangle, A rectangle, and in that rectangle, there's, two, there's several rooms kind of in the shape of a square, and what you have is outside, Gentiles couldn't go in. If you're not a Jew, you could not go in the temple. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter your status, It's for those who are outside of the Jewish faith. They couldn't go in there. Then once you step in, there's this sort of courtyard, if you will, a room type where only the women could go in. Well, not only the women. The women could go in there, but they couldn't go any farther than that. Why? Well, what I said earlier, women were very devalued in that Uh, time period. You see it all throughout the scripture. And that's why Jesus was so countercultural whenever he uh, used women in scripture as far as getting his will done, as far as Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and he's teaching him. This stunned the crowd. People and, and those who opposed him didn't like this because this was not normal. So women could go here, but they couldn't go any farther than that. Then past that You had the court of the priests where men could go. But once you start seeing those steps that lead to this room with the veil inside the Holy of Holies, who could go in there? The high priest and only the high priest. Once a year. And who is the high priest at the time? The very one who said, what more evidence do we need? This man needs to die. So you have this man, the high priest, Caiaphas, who could go in this room once a year for his sins and the sins of the people. And he would offer this sacrificial lamb. He would sacrifice it, offer it to God because that was where the dwelling place of God was. Now I have to ask you, why did Jesus keep this going. Year after year after year after year after year after year the high priest once a year would go in there. Why would he allow this to keep happening? Then why would he allow this crucifixion, this brutal death of his son happen? Why? Because Jesus said remember what Jesus said? He said I could send how many? We heard last week I think Dr. Spivey, how many angels? 12, that, can you imagine that many angels coming down, saving Jesus? He said, I could send down that many angels, but I'm not gonna do it. God, the father could have done so as well, and he didn't do it. He watched his son die on that cross. Taking on your sin and my sin. Why did he not stop it? because of what happened in verse 45. The veil of the temple was torn in two. And according to Ephesians, the wall, the barrier was torn, was broken, was destroyed. So what did that mean? It meant not just the high priest could go up there. It meant any Jewish man could walk straight up there. It meant that a woman could go right up there into the presence of God. It meant that that Roman guard, that Roman centurion in verse 47, who said, when he saw all this happen, he began praising God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Mark says, he says, certainly this is the son of God. That Roman guard could then go into God's presence. That's why God did not stop this from happening. So that you So that you, so that you, so that I go into the presence of God, offer myself to him, and say, God, have mercy on me. That's why he didn't stop it. And that's how much God loves you. The fact that he would not spare his only son, because you belonged on that cross. I belonged on that cross. Jesus said, I'll go. And God didn't stop him. And Jesus didn't stop it from happening so that you could go into his very presence and that you could be made right with him. That's the God that we serve. And that's in the scarlet thread of redemption. And come back next week to see what happened to the Savior who died on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Mere words cannot express the gratitude that we have for what you have done for us. The fact that you endured shame, humiliation, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual pain even by bearing our sins on yourself on the cross and lord we forget that so much we know the story we've heard it we understand even many of us that that you did this so we could be made right with you but so often we forget everything that was at at play (laughs) In this situation, and that if it did not happen, there would be no chance where we could be made right with you. But you loved us so much that you allowed this to happen and that you didn't stop it, so that the high priest for the Jews at the time, a Jewish male, a Jewish female, and a Gentile who was despised in that day by the Jews, could go into your presence because you. Were the sacrificial lamb. You were the lamb of God, are the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for that, we give you praise. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.